we will proceed to hearing from nominees we have uh, for three different uh, positions. We have uh, Mr. Uh, Ashok Pindo to be United States Alternative Executive Director of the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development. The Honorable William Todd, a career member of the Senior Executive Service to be Ambassador to the Islamic Republic of Pakistan. Mr. Eric Ulan to be Under Secretary of State for uh, Civilian Security, Democracy, and Human Rights. Uh, Senator Thune will be here momentarily and uh, is going to make an introduction, but uh, uh, in, in any event, uh, I think we'll, we will proceed, uh, and as soon as uh, Senator Thune gets here, we will give him the courtesy of having the floor. Uh, Senator Menendez, any comments? <clears throat> uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, let me address the, the three nominees. Ambassador Todd, I'm eager to hear your vision for our relationship with Pakistan as the region goes through a potentially historic transformation with the peace process in Afghanistan. While we hope for forward progress with Pakistan, we must be clear-eyed by the significant challenges in the relationship, including the stubborn presence of terrorist groups in the country, tensions with India, treatment of religious minorities, and concern about Pakistan's growing nuclear stockpile. I remain deeply concerned about the prevalence of terrorist groups in the country and their impact on the region. Progress has been made, but Pakistan must make further, take further action to address this insidious threat, especially Lashkar al Taba. For too long, this group has been able to operate in different forms over the years. If Pakistan wants us to take its counterterrorism commitments seriously, it must completely eradicate this group. In addition, I have grown increasingly concerned about the plight of religious minorities in the country and call upon the Pakistani authorities to respect religious rights of all in the country. Finally, I, I do feel compelled to note that your nomination has received some unusual attention for a career nominee. We have received some strong recommendations of support, and at the same time, others have voiced significant opposition based on your performance as a senior management official at state. And while we're not in a position to get to the bottom of all of this at this time, I believe it's important for members of the committee to be aware. Mr. Ulan, my impression is that you're an intelligent person, but that alone is not a qualification to be the Undersecretary for Civilian Security, Democracy, and Human Rights. I'm sorry to say that Mr. Ulan's nomination appears to be another case of the Trump administration playing musical chairs with senior positions at the State Department. The President originally nominated Mr. Ulan to be Undersecretary for Management, but that nomination did not move forward because of concerns from then-Chairman Corker. In August of 2018, the President nominated Marshall Billingsley to be Undersecretary for Civilian Security, Democracy, and Human Rights, but that nomination failed due to Mr. Billingsley's support for torture. Now Mr. Billingsley is nominated for another Undersecretary position, and you, Mr. Ulan, have taken his place. There's an element of farce to this, but I, for one, am not amused. These are serious jobs that require subject-matic expertise and experience. I recognize that you are well-versed on budget matters, including a short stint at the State Department, but this is not a budget job. This is about enhancing our own security by helping others build a more just, more humane, and more democratic societies. These very principles are under assault by autocratic leaders around the world, many of them coddled by President Trump. And as so many in this country and across the globe have witnessed with horror, the President is doing his best to trash them here at home too. 
We have learned that the President expressed approval of concentration camps in Xinjiang. His administration has intentionally separated migrant children from their parents, denied individuals their right to seek asylum, downplayed human rights abuses in countries like North Korea to the Persian Gulf, coddled a dictator who ordered the brutal murder of journalist and U.S. resident Jamal Khashoggi, actively rolled back reproductive health care at home and abroad, verbally attacked the principle of freedom of the press, assaulted peaceful protesters exercising their First Amendment rights, and undermined the rule of law in countless ways. Sadly, the list goes on and on. So do you agree with these actions, Mr. Ulan? Is this your vision of America? If you're confirmed, you'll be defending these atrocities and advancing others, all indelible stains on our national character. Finally, I look forward to hearing from Mr. Pinto about how he plans to use his position to advocate for the United States and ensure the continuation of the critical work that the World Bank does across the world, especially at a time when COVID-19 has ravaged the globe. With that, Mr. Chairman, thank you. Thank you very much. Senator Thune, welcome to uh, the United States Senate Foreign Relations uh, Distinguished and uh, Amiable Committee, as you can see. We're welcome to have you. I uh, understand you'd like to make an introduction. Yes, sir. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, <clears throat> I can see you, but you're a long ways away. Uh, I want to say, uh, Chairman Risch and Ranking Member uh, Menendez, thank you for the opportunity to introduce Ashok Pinto to the committee as you consider his nomination to serve as the Alternative Executive Director of the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development. I strongly recommend him to the committee and hope that you will move quickly to confirm his nomination. Ashok currently serves as Senior Advisor to the U.S. Executive Director D.J. Norquist at the World Bank. Before that, Ashok served as Counselor to the Undersecretary for International Affairs and Counselor to the General Counsel of the Treasury Department. During my tenure as Chairman of the Commerce Committee, Ashok served on my Commerce Committee staff from 2015 to 2018. He led the Commerce Committee's Consumer Protection and Investigation staff during that time. In this role, he helped lead numerous important legislative and investigative initiatives on a wide-ranging set of issues under the jurisdiction of the Committee, from aviation to cybersecurity to data protection matters. The Commerce Committee is perhaps one of the more bipartisan committees in the Senate, even with regard to the investigations conducted by the committee. And I'm sure that you'll find that many of the Democratic staff on the Commerce Committee enjoyed working with Ashok. Ashok is exceptionally bright, and he is friendly and kind-hearted individual of character who is very well suited for this position. I wish Ashok and his family well as they embark on this new chapter in his career. Ashok and his wife, Priya, have four children, and a loving extended family who I'm sure are all very proud of him today. The Senate nominations process is not for the faint of heart, especially these days, and I applaud Ashok for the commitment to, his commitment, I should say, to serve the public, and I again urge this committee to support his nomination. This is a nomination that deserves strong bipartisan support. I would also, as long as I'm here, Mr. Chairman, like to add a word of congratulations to Eric Uland, who is also appearing before you today to testify regarding his nomination to be Under Secretary of State. Many of us have benefited from Eric's wise counsel during his years of service to the Senate and the Executive Branch. Mr. Chairman, thank you again. Uh, thanks to uh, Ranking Member Menendez for the opportunity to introduce Ashok to the Foreign Relations Committee. I look forward to working with you to advance this nomination. Mr. Chairman, thank you. 
Thank you, Senator Thune. We appreciate you coming up and uh, recommending Mr. Pinnow, particularly your description of his kindness. This committee loves kindness. Mr. Pinnow, the floor is yours. Yeah, there's more of it. Chairman Risch, Ranking Member Menendez, and members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today. <clears throat> and thank you, Senator Thune, for that kind introduction and for all you do for the people of South Dakota and our nation. I'm extremely grateful to have served on the Commerce Committee under your exemplary leadership. And I also want to, as a former Senate staffer, recognize and sincerely appreciate the hard work of your staffs in making this hearing possible. It is the honor of a lifetime to be President Trump's nominee to be alternate U.S. Executive Director to the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, a key component of the World Bank. I am grateful to Secretary Mnuchin, Deputy Secretary Muzinich, and Undersecretary McIntosh for their confidence in recommending me for this position. Also, the encouragement and assistance from my colleagues at the U.S. Treasury Department and the World Bank have been inspiring. I would not be here today without the love and support of my family, my beloved wife Priya, and our four wonderful children, Serafina, Lucy, John, and Joseph. My parents also deserve special thanks for their unwavering support. They came to the United States as graduate students. Now, they have been in this country much longer than their formative years in India. My parents instilled in me a spirit of service <clears throat> and an appreciation of other cultures. Because of their countless sacrifices and constant encouragement, my brother Jay, a physician, my sister Susanna, a journalist, and I, have had every opportunity to excel in our chosen professions, only in America. I have been fortunate to have served in all three branches of government, including both houses of Congress. It is an amazing opportunity to continue my service at the World Bank. There is truly no nobler a goal than to end extreme poverty and foster income growth for the poorest people of every country. Indeed, helping the less fortunate is the objective that unites us in public service. A formative service project in Mexico during high school, as well as trips to India to visit extended family over the years, have ma made me appreciate the myriad of opportunities I have had and imbued me with a desire to help others. The world now faces a challenge of an unprecedented scale, affecting billions of lives and causing setbacks, major setbacks in economic development. Millions are at risk of, of falling into extreme poverty, reversing the steady downward trajectory of the last three decades. The World Bank is playing a pivotal role in addressing the COVID-19 global pandemic, particularly by helping the poorest people around the world who are most vulnerable to the virus. We must persist because failure simply is not an option. With already pub surging public debt levels, debt service suspension can provide swift and significant relief, allowing governments to channel these resources to support their citizens. The World Bank and the International Monetary Fund have supported a coordinated effort to which the G20 and the Paris Club have agreed by bilateral official creditors to suspend debt service payments for the poorest countries that request this assistance. The G7 is committed to implementing this initiative, which includes lending safeguards and debt transparency, with significant emerging sovereign creditor and private sector creditor participation as key objectives. In addition, the World Bank Group, under the leadership of President Malpass, has committed to deploy up to $160 billion through the end of the current, its current fiscal year. At the World Bank, the voice and voting power of the United States stand for independent accountability, budget discipline, and focus on the bank's core mission. 
While we must react quickly to help those in need, we must not let speed come at the expense of accountability, which includes quality and environmental and social safeguards. U.S. leadership is more important than ever to promote peace, stability, and economic growth. If I have the privilege to serve as alternate U.S. Executive Director, I will commit myself to focusing on the most vulnerable countries, maintaining comprehensive oversight, and ensuring the integrity and accuracy of World Bank data. The United States was a leader in the foundation of the World Bank in Bretton Woods 76 years ago. And, and now, again faced with global adversity, the United States must show unwavering leadership in providing assistance where it is most needed, restoring momentum towards achieving our development goals, and ensuring the long-term sustainability of the World Bank and American leadership therein. Members of this committee provide valuable input regarding U.S. objectives at the World Bank. If confirmed, I look forward to working closely with you and your staffs. Again, thank you, and I will gladly answer any questions you may have. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Pino. Uh, uh, Mr. Todd, uh, the floor is yours. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Menendez, honorable members of the committee, I am humbled to appear before you today as a nominee to serve as the next U.S. Ambassador to Pakistan. I am grateful to President Trump and Secretary Pompeo for the trust and confidence they have placed in me through this nomination. While they cannot be here in person today, I would like to recognize my wonderful family. Words are insufficient to express my love, my admiration, and my appreciation for my wife, Anne, and my parents, Jack and Marie Todd. I am very grateful for my four children, William, Chris, John, and Caitlin. As a family, we have shared the excitement, the joys, and sometimes the hardships associated with my career. And through it all, we have been richly blessed. I come before you today as a career member of the Senior Executive Service. During 37 years with the U.S. government, I have served in some of the most interesting and rewarding positions across six presidential administrations, including having been confirmed as a U.S. Ambassador to mm -hmm. Cambodia and to Brunei, whoa, 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 whoa. once in an ambassadorial rank position in Afghanistan as a Coordinating Director of Development and Economic Affairs, and once as Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for South and Central Affairs, South and Central Asian Affairs, and in my current position, Deputy Undersecretary for Management. Across my career, my highest priority has always been the safety and security of our team. At no other time in recent history has that been so challenged. Since January, I have had the distinct honor to lead much of the department's mitigation and response to the COVID-19 pan pandemic, which has included the repatriation of over 100,000 Americans from over 135 countries, including 4,000 foreign service officers and 6,000 members of their family. COVID-19 has also had a profound impact on Pakistan. It has greatly affected Pakistan's health and its economy. If confirmed, I will continue to make the U.S.-Pakistan COVID-19 partnership a priority. Beyond COVID-19, this is an important and opportune time in the broader, complicated U.S.-Pakistan relationship. Over the years, we certainly have had our differences, and many of those differences remain today. Nonetheless, we are also working together on many shared goals. Today, our countries recognize that we share a common interest in a durable peace in Afghanistan. 
Pakistan has played an important role in helping to facilitate the ongoing Afghan peace negotiations in Doha. Looking forward, Pakistan has a more important role to play, supporting efforts that will lead to a political settlement that ends 40 years of war. This is a moment of opportunity for Pakistan to forge a new and better role in the region, and if confirmed, will be one of my highest priorities. In terms of regional dynamics, although we have a strong relationship with India, it should not come at the expense of Pakistan. I believe that under the right conditions, we can have a strong relationship with both countries. Our hope is that both countries will take the necessary steps to reduce tensions. And as the President has offered, we will facilitate dialogue if both sides agree. However, to truly reduce tension, Pakistan must take sustained and irreversible action against terrorism. Pakistan has suffered terribly at the hands of terrorists and has committed publicly to ensure they cannot use their territory to operate. Pakistan has also taken important steps toward fulfilling this commitment, and if confirmed, I will work with the government of Pakistan to continue further progress on these priorities. Lastly, there are three other key priorities that I will focus on if confirmed. First is human rights, second, trade and investment, and third is youth engagement. These priorities will be challenging to fulfill, but will lead to a better future for Pakistan and a stronger U.S.-Pakistan relationship. In closing, Mr. Chairman, I would like to reiterate that my highest priority has been and will always be the safety and security of all U.S. citizens. Recently, a U.S. citizen by the name of Tahir Naseem was murdered in a courtroom in Pakistan where he was about to be tried for blasphemy. Frankly, I was shocked, I was saddened, and I was outraged by this event. And if confirmed, I will engage Pakistani authorities to hold the perpetrators fully accountable. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I look forward to working with you, this committee, and the entire Congress. I would be happy to answer any questions. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Todd. Mr. Ulan. Mr. Chairman, Senator Menendez, and members of the committee, thank you for the privilege of appearing today as President Trump's nominee for Undersecretary of State for Civilian Security, Democracy, and Human Rights, the Jay family. I am grateful to both President Trump and Secretary Pompeo for their confidence and hope to earn your support and Senate confirmation. I'd also like to thank my family whose support allows me the opportunity to continue my public service. The role of the Undersecretary is to promote the ideals of the American people and contribute to their safety and security, and this is done best when the Undersecretary leads. And leadership at Jay takes many forms, starting with a strong public voice. Whether it's calling out the Chinese Communist Party's behavior in Hong Kong, its efforts to erase the identity of the Tibetan people, and its sweeping human rights abuses in Xinjiang, or spotlighting the illegitimate Maduro regime's continued denial of the Venezuelan people's democracy and their freedom, or the regime in Iran, the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism, inflicting shocking human rights abuses on its own people, spreading the vile poison of anti-Semitism around the globe. For all these and more, we must confront abuses, amplify the voices of the suffering, and lead the international community in standing up to perpetrators. If confirmed, I will deploy as appropriate tools from the entire suite of J Family implements, including sanctions, designations, and determinations. I will highlight a large collection of public reporting on trafficking in persons, 
human rights, religious freedom, child soldiers, atrocities, terrorism, and narcotics. I will do all this to shed light on the actions of malign actors, promote accountability, and drive change. Leadership at Jay is also about working to effectively alleviate suffering and provide life-saving aid around the globe. The United States is the world's largest donor of humanitarian assistance. While assisting the vulnerable and distressed, we must also address causes of conflict and instability. So for a while example, the United States leads the response to the challenge in Rakhine State. We press the Burmese government to create conditions for the safe, secure, and voluntary return of Rohingya refugees, including by respecting human rights and holding accountable the perpetrators of atrocities. Jay should approach humanitarian challenges in a holistic manner to protect against fragility growing into larger problems for us and our partners in the future. Leadership at Jay also means broadening and deepening our international partnerships to curb opioid and drug flows to the United States, dismantle terrorist networks, end human trafficking, and disrupt transnational criminal organizations. The Jay family uses training and expertise to build the global partnerships which protect our citizens here at home. And we all know that ensuring the United States is the international partner of choice both influences foreign governments and reinforces our global leadership in an era of renewed great power competition. Leadership, too, means setting agendas. For example, the Trump administration has put protecting freedom of religion or belief at the forefront, hosting two unprecedented ministerials to advance religious freedom and launching the International Religious Freedom Alliance. If confirmed, I would utilize my skills working with multiple stakeholders to support this agenda and other priorities, expanding our coalition of like-minded nations. Leading Jay does also mean careful stewardship of public funds. As a world leader in humanitarian and security partnerships, U.S. resources must be used effectively, efficiently, and responsibly. Ongoing evaluation of our programs will ensure we are accomplishing our goals and reflecting our values. If confirmed, I will seek to ensure our programs are assessed by realistic, measurable outcomes. And with our international coalitions, I would continue to promote the President's burden-sharing objectives. Finally, leadership means directing highly capable public servants to accomplish the President's foreign policy agenda. I'll put my management skills to work on issues which the Jay family handles listening to and learning from incredibly distinguished public servants working in the Jay family to harness their passion for the work they do on behalf of the president and the nation. Mr. Chairman, Senator Menendez, and members of the committee, I appreciate the chance to be here today, and if confirmed, I look forward to working with the committee. Thank you for your courtesy this morning, and I welcome any questions you may have. Thank you, Mr. Todd. Mr. Ulan. I'm sorry. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. <laughs> You're very welcome, but you only get one bite of the apple here. Right. Um, we're going to do a round of questions now, and I want to, I want to start, Mr. Todd, with you. Uh, first of all, uh, we know historically when, whenever things, uh, there's upheaval in Afghanistan, we see a flood going into Pakistan, particularly into the western provinces, provinces in Pakistan. It's caused us no end of grief uh, 
during the time we've been uh, engaged in, in Afghanistan. What, what are your thoughts? What do you see in that regard? How do you see that playing out as, uh, however this peace process goes, whichever direction it goes, there's going to be movement across the border to the east out of Afghanistan. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? How do you see that playing out? How, how are the Pakistanis going to handle this? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, right now, Pakistan uh, has generously uh, taken care of millions of uh, Afghan refugees over the last several years. Um, we have very active programs in country right now, um, both uh, uh, bilaterally and through various international organizations. Um, we believe that uh, if the peace and reconciliation process goes as planned, over a period of time, some of those refugees will want to go back. Uh, currently, the U.S. position is that it has to be condition-based, that there needs to be basically uh, safety and security first, it has to be voluntary second, and third, that whatever is the mechanism, it should live up to the international norms of migration. And if I'm confirmed, I, I assure you I will work with the refugees, civil society, and the government of Pakistan to make sure it happens in the proper way. Thank you very much. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Todd, uh, I'm dismayed that you're appearing at this hearing without having complied with a request by Chairman Engel and I, outstanding since February, to be interviewed on retaliation against career public servants. While I put the onus of the responsibility on the State Department, the failure to comply with a congressional request on critical oversight matters is also a reflection on you, one that I hope you can correct. So I'd like to ask you for a firm commitment on the record. Do you commit to appear for a transcribed interview regarding political retaliation as was requested to you since last February? Well, uh, thank you, Mr. Senator. Uh, yesterday I had a very good and fulsome discussion about this with your team. Um, to be candid with you, uh, I am a 37-year 30, career employee. In my entire career, I've, had, um, I've never had the opportunity uh, to be told that it's a requirement of doing something. I must uh, do a voluntary transcribed interview. Over the last several months, I have made multiple attempts to brief uh, the committee, provide any answers for any questions that the committee has asked, provide any information that the committee is in. Well, I, you're not answering my question. So well, your answer is no, you will not sit for a tran. You know, uh, this, this, uh, this is not something that can be covered in a courtesy meeting with my staff or Chairman Engel's staff. There are other members of the State Department, career people as well, who have sat for a transcribed interview, and I don't understand your reticence to do so. Well, um, Again, Mr. Senator, um, I gave your team the reasons, but just to reduce it to very practical levels, um, for me to do a transcribed interview, I'm going to have to hire an attorney. That attorney is going to cost twenty-five dollars or $30,000. I am a career employee. You know how much I make. Also, I would rather— I have to be honest with you. The, the, for you to raise the issue of private counsel for the first time more than six months after the initial request and following no response by the department, it's hard to see that as a real obstacle. The department has historically 
agreed to make witnesses available voluntarily for transcribed interviews. Dozens of officials have been interviewed for past requests, including for the Benghazi Committee, among others, and did so with agency counsel and no out-of-pocket costs. Sir, I have made multiple attempts to meet with the, uh, your committee. I've offered probably two or three times a month for the last six months. I've been unable to get a meeting. Also, you'll, you'll be able to get a meeting if you want to be willing to submit to a, a transcription. For some reason, whatever it is that you have to say, you don't want to say in a transcribed proceeding. So I'm not going to play rope-a-dope with you anymore. Your answer is no, based upon the positions that you've taken here. Sir, I would like to come up and answer any questions you have voluntarily. That has been my position for six months. But also, not in a transcribed I proceeding. I believe it's unnecessary. I'm not an attorney. I do well, not have a counsel. transcribed proceeding only creates a record of what you have to say. So I don't understand what, what the reticence is. If you're willing to say whatever it is is the answer to questions, whether they're transcribed or not, it should be the same answer, right? Unless somehow you would deceive us in an untranscribed process, but in a transcribed process, you would tell us the truth. So let me, let me, let me, let me move on. I, I clearly have your answer by virtue of your unwillingness uh, to do this. Let, let, me, uh, let me ask you, uh, uh, with reference to the potential assignment you may have, I don't know if you're going to get there, um, how will you use your tools at your disposal to encourage Pakistan to take real action against um, Lashkar Taiba uh, and its leadership? Um. Thank you, Mr. Senator. Uh, that's an important question. LET, as you know, uh, is a terrorist group that has um, uh, created um, terror over the last several years. Pakistan has, uh, they've uh, worked hard to prosecute the leadership of LET. The leader of, of, of the terrorist group was imprisoned approximately a year ago. Twelve of his uh, subordinates were also imprisoned. Um, if I'm confirmed, I will continue to press Pakistan to take sustained irreversible action against terrorists. I also will work with them on uh, the terrorist financing aspect of it. And again, if I'm confirmed, I look forward to uh, coming and briefing you in the committee. Mr. Chairman, I have a series of questions for Mr. Todd, Mr. Ulan, but in deference to our colleagues, I'll wait for uh, a final round. Sam Brasso. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Pinto, I had a couple questions, if I could. The, uh, and first, I want to start talking about an, an all-of-the-above energy strategy. You know, uh, global philanthropist Bill Gates explains that increasing access to electricity is really critical to lifting the world's poor out of poverty. And worldwide, there are just short of a billion people who are today living without electricity. I know you're well aware of this. They can't cook or heat their homes safely, can't do it reliably. Uh, nearly three billion people still rely on wood and waste for household energy. People living in poor and developing nations, uh, they want and need a stable energy supply. It's about energy today for them. And they're looking for power generation that provides energy security. It helps create jobs and it improves their lives, their lives today. And I believe traditional fuels are a vital tool to help people escape poverty. 
Uh, yet over the past few years, the World Bank has been imposing restrictions on the financing of traditional energy projects. Uh, last year, I led a dozen senators in, uh, in a letter urging the World Bank to immediately lift these harmful restrictions. And my letter, of course, was to the World Bank President David Malpas. It was co-signed by Senators Bozeman, Capito, Cotton, Kramer, Cruz, Enzi, Hovind, Johnson, Kennedy, Murkowski, and Thune. Uh, together, we pressed the bank to recommit to an all-of-the-above energy strategy. So to achieve its mission, the World Bank really, I believe, must embrace, not exclude, affordable energy resources. Ultimately, the solution to energy poverty doesn't lie in limiting options, but in using all available options. So if confirmed, will you commit to ensuring the World Bank is promoting all forms of energy projects across the globe, including oil, gas, and coal? Senator, thank you for the question, uh, and uh, I'm certainly aware of your interest and your concern regarding this issue, and I appreciated the opportunity to discuss it with your staff. Uh, yes, uh, I, I agree with you, and I believe that uh, countries determine what energy mix is most appropriate to meet their needs, and that an all-the-above approach ensures that uh, the, the bank can, can, can truly make a dent in that um, nearly one billion number of people who lack uh, access to electricity around the world. Thank you. I want to turn to uh, China's predatory lending. Uh, through the, Bolt, the uh, Belt and Road Initiative, the Chinese Communist Party offers countries the ability to borrow a lot of money uh, for infrastructure projects. Uh, the problem is that these countries then accumulate large amounts of debt, debt to China. Uh, they're unable to pay it back and while still not achieving the development gains that many are seeking. So they borrow money, go into debt, can't get done what they want to do, but they're unable to escape the massive debt that's owed to China. They face default or forfeiture of some of their strategic assets, their natural resources, and you've seen this happen around the globe. So on top of the financial pressure, some countries are now also facing the economic hardships that have been caused by coronavirus. Um, to me, this is a, a tragic recipe. Uh, what actions do you believe the World Bank uh, should take, and, and how would you ensure American taxpayers aren't bailing out Chinese financial institutions and further enabling China's predatory lending policies? Senator, thanks for that. Thanks also for that question, and I also recognize that that's a serious concern. Um, the World Bank, as I mentioned in my testimony, is uh, uh, convening a, a debt suspension uh, debt service suspension initiative, and the importance uh, of that is to have to make sure that all non-Paris Club creditors, uh, including China, are at the table uh, and are are fully participating in that initiative. Um, I also think that uh, um, it's important for the bank, uh, as as you noted, to um, reduce its lending to China uh, to promote uh, graduation. Uh, on the part of China. Uh, that's something that China should aspire to, given uh, that is now a, a wealthy country with the second largest economy in the world. So um, we'd like to see continue to see a downward traje trajectory in uh, lending uh, to China from the bank. And uh, um, we'd like to see China become uh, a net donor and uh, no longer a net borrower, uh, because those resources are scarce. Well, just to add to exactly what you said, China is the second largest economy in the world. And as you point out, China still receives below market rates for projects financed with loans from the World Bank. Uh, in December of 2019, the World Bank approved a new plan to provide China with between $1 billion and $1.5 billion in low interest loans annually through 2025. 
Um, this is happening while the Chinese Communist Party, through its Bolt, Belt and Road Initiative, is engaged in predatory lending practices that we just uh, described. So I'm just I'm seriously concerned about the World Bank using American tax dollars uh, to loan money to China while China is engaged in debt trap diplomacy in developing countries across the globe. So I appreciate your attention to that and your commitment to making sure that that declines, and I would like to have that decline at a rapid rate. Thank, thank you. you thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Barrasso. Well said. Senator Cardin. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And let me thank all three of our, uh, our nominees for their willingness uh, to continue to serve our country. Mr. Yulin, I want to ask you a, a few questions in regards uh, to the uh, position that you have been nominated to fill. Uh, as Senator Menendez pointed out, you have uh, experience in the budget areas. Uh, you don't really have broad experience in democracy building or human rights. Clearly, we want to use our financial leverage to advance democracy and human rights. So I hope that that experience uh, will help you in dealing with the bureaucracy within the State Department and the executive branch to advance democracy and human rights. Freedom House uh, recently reported that 25 of the 41 democratic states in the world have seen a decline in democracy, including the United States of America. And we have fewer democratic states today at any time since they've been doing their report, which started in 1995. So we've seen a decline of democracy. Our values need to be how we conduct our foreign policy wrapped in our values. How do you intend to stand up to the bureaucracy of the State Department that has issues that they like to put the human rights or democracy building on the back burners compared to other issues, or the messaging that comes out of sometimes the executive branch that is very vague on our values, and I'm putting that gently. Can we count on you to stand up for the important role that this agency was, or this position was developed in order to promote democracy, to advance human rights, to stand up for American values, and to make sure it's incorporated in all of our foreign policy decisions? Senator, thank you very much for the question. And I think based on my experience, not only can I confidently say yes, but be able to explain why I have confidence in that answer. My work here on the Hill and in the executive branch, which certainly has focused at points on financial matters, budget matters, and spending matters, gives me an appreciation of a simple fact that oftentimes resources are policy, and that in order to drive results, the need for appropriate resources to be applied to significant foreign policy challenges is paramount. The work inside the department to build consensus with folks in the field, as well as regional bureaus, um, fellow sec undersecretaries, assistant secretaries, and the like, um, is something that I have some familiarity with, having served as the director of F and trying to prioritize our work in such areas as policy and priorities for refugee and migration flows, um, the work that we've done on humanitarian assistance to coordinate our efforts better, both inside the Department of State as well as with USAID pioneering uh, and spearheading our effort to ensure that how we follow through on the trafficking in persons report for consequences out in countries that have qualified as tier three, uh, 
and suspending programs appropriately, but with USAID attempting to ensure that appropriate programs that need to continue actually do continue because they reflect our values. Senator, I anticipate that if I have the opportunity to serve, if I'm confirmed, I'll be working quite intensely inside the Department of State, inside the interagency, with the Office of Management and Budget to ensure that resources match our policy. So let me ask you one specific question, if yes, I might. Uh, the Ellie Wiesel Genocide and Prevention Act uh, that uh, I authored along with Senator Young yes, sir. Uh, has a strategy for us to try to prevent atrocities from occurring. The Early Warning Task Force uh, is part of that process to determine countries that are at risk of, of, of atrocities. Will you support the public release of countries identified at risk of atrocities so that we can put a spotlight on these countries in order to deal with preventing those atrocities from moving forward? Senator, thank you very much for that question. You raise an interesting point. At times, as part of our public diplomacy, it is appropriate to release information and provide spotlight on potential challenges. Um, if you have more than four seconds, I'm happy to expand a bit on the fact that, as you know, in the Jay family, the responsibility for serving as the Secretariat for the Atrocity Early Warning Task Force actually resides in the CSO Bureau. And the work that CSO does in an effort to ensure that there are early warnings about potential atrocity situations and encourage and work with the interagency in ways to find throughout the, the department, as well as perhaps with interagency partners, to intervene to preempt atrocities from even occurring is a significant responsibility that occurs in Jay at CSO. So I, I anticipate I, Yeah, that, my time's running out. I, I understand, I, I, but I, I just, again, want to emphasize, we have a wide suite of tools. There are moments I, I, where I, private I, engagement, moments when public engagement is appropriate in dealing with I, significant I, instances including potential atrocities. I, I'm going to respectfully disagree. I'm also going to record respectfully disagree with the clarity here. I'm a the senior Democrat on the Helsinki Commission on the Senate. And naming and shaming has been the way that we have gotten so much progress internationally on advancing human rights. The global Magnitsky bill. You need to be specific, otherwise the issues get lost. So I would just urge you to reflect that if you're not, don't have the courage to identify the bad actors, they will continue to be bad actors. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Cardin. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to each of our um, nominees this morning. Um, Mr. Euland, in your opening statement, you talked about a number of the human, the challenges that Jay faces that you would face if you were confirmed. But I didn't hear you discuss the empowerment of women as one of the ways in which we could be addressing some of these challenges because what we know about empowering women is that it contributes to stability in communities and in countries. So can you talk about how you might um, support the empowerment of women if you are confirmed in ways that would help advance the human rights agenda that you talked about? Well, Senator, thank you very much for that question, and I appreciate very much your focus on the empowerment of women, since that is 
one of about five priority areas that I anticipate spending significant time on if confirmed as undersecretary. The work that the senior advisor in the White House has done, Ivanka Trump, on the issue of WGDP, the work done that I saw and experienced firsthand at Millennium Challenge Corporation about ensuring that women's rights and women's participation in MCC projects as multilateral efforts inside countries to advance uh, their interests and their economic uh, potentiality. The work we do with our foreign assistance that I saw at F to focus on ways to continue to empower women all will be one of those priority areas that I will focus on during my tenure at F in addition to internet freedom, religious freedom, and trying to pioneer ways to focus on the rights of the elderly and handicapped. Um, to go back to the Global Magnitsky Act that Senator Cardin raised, I've seen reports that during your time at Goldman Sachs, you worked to help the firm lobby against the Magnitsky Act, which as we know, helps identify and punish um, the most serious human rights abusers around the world. So if confirmed, would you um, seek to uphold the spirit and principles of the Magnitsky Act? And can you give us examples where you think um, we should be looking at um, using it to address specific um, events or individuals who are um, responsible for oppression? Thank you very much, Senator, for the question. And as I explained last week to committee staff on the Democratic side, our responsibilities to provide information about what we were doing as lobbyists, including information about what was just occurring up here, was what triggered our responsibility to file on what was going on in terms of Senator Cardin's and others' efforts to bring the Magnitsky Act into existence. It is the law of the land, Senator, and I anticipate, as we discussed last time I was before the committee, taking care of that laws be faithfully executed. As you know, this administration has stepped forward very aggressively to use the Global Magnitsky Act repeatedly and consequentially against individuals who have committed wrongdoing and qualify for sanction under the Global Magnitsky Act. I am not prepared today to uh, make policy from the table by indicating individuals or situations where there might be qualification for the Magnitsky Act, but if confirmed as undersecretary, the undersecretary and institutions in the undersecretariat play a significant role in evaluating who might qualify for sanction under the Magnitsky Act, making recommendations to the secretary about the Magnitsky Act, and then in a public way talking about the use of the Magnitsky Act if ultimately the president is, decides to go ahead and utilize it. Um, well, I appreciate that. I hope you will continue to um, support the use of the act in ways that are important to our national security. Ambassador Todd, um, you talked about the role of Pakistan in the negotiations that are currently going on between the Taliban and um, Afghanistan. And what more can we do to urge Pakistan not just to support those negotiations with the Taliban, but to encourage the government of Afghanistan to be a critical player. I, I thought the, the point that um, some people are looking at those negotiations and seeing four participants that d does not include the government of Afghanistan in any meaningful way. So what could you do as ambassador to try and move an agenda that actually includes 
the Afghan government because if we're going to have any kind of long-term um, peace in Afghanistan, they certainly need to be part of that effort. Well, thank you, uh, Senator. The, uh, as, as I mentioned in my uh, testimony, um, Pakistan is playing a very important role in uh, the peace and reconciliation process. They've been very helpful facilitating meetings. They've been helpful uh, reducing tension, and uh, they've been very, very helpful in terms of getting the, uh, the, the logistics and other things done that have helped us do what we needed to do. Um, right now, as you know, in Doha, it is an Afghan-led, Afghan-owned uh, discussion and negotiation. Um, but frankly, it, it's a long process between where we are today and where we need to go. For, you know, for Pakistan, I think their most important role is moving forward, getting to um, peace and uh, reconciliation, which will formally uh, result in a political settlement that will end the 40-year war. Also, Pakistan uh, needs to continue to put uh, extreme pressure on the various terrorist groups that um, live and reside inside Pakistan. And if I'm confirmed, uh, that will be my highest priority because getting to peace is extremely important, not only for Afghanistan, but also for Pakistan. And frankly, no other country uh, other than Afghanistan benefits more from peace than Pakistan. Thank you. My time is up. Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Shaheen. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and congratulations to the witnesses for your nominations. Mr. Uland, uh, I want to just direct my comments to you. Um, yes, sir. I, I feel sorry for you. Um, you have had a distinguished career, and you are nominated for a position that is a really important one. Um, and your opening comments suggest that there's a long agenda of things that we need to attend to that you would like to. But the reason I feel sorry for you is this. The United States' ability to set an example on human rights issues is deeply compromised by activities of the President. And since he's the person who has the loudest microphone of any American, the work that you do to try to promote human rights around the world is something that's uh, going to be very, very difficult. I mean, I know you'll make a good faith effort should you be confirmed, but just recent examples. Uh, last night at a rally, uh, the President uh, has continued to repeat things. He's done in early rallies, leading crowds and chanting, lock her up or lock them up about political opponents. Uh, at a rally over the weekend, the President spoke to an audience in Minnesota and uh, praised police for firing a rubber bullet at a reporter, Ali Velshi of MSNBC, peacefully covering a peaceful protest. There's no dispute about that. The President said that was a beautiful example of law and order. Press freedom is part of the portfolio of the um, State Department sections you'll work with. Um, Saudi Arabia imprisoning women for activism for women's rights, um, murdering a Virginia journalist, Virginia resident journalist, Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, and in a recent interview with a, an accompanying audio tape, the President basically said, I saved his ass about uh, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, who the U.S. intelligence largely believes was responsible for the assassination. And he bragged about, I got Congress to leave him alone. I got Congress to stop efforts toward accountability. 
you talked in your opening about the need to fight for human rights in Iran, and we need to, or fight for human rights in other jurisdictions, and we need to. But again and again and again, the President is willing to undermine human rights uh, in this country and elsewhere and protect dictators and authoritarians. One uh, recent example, I think we would all agree that human rights include racial equality. The President, for some reason, has been on a tear attacking a member of this committee. Senator Booker was in here earlier. In tweets and in speeches and on television, the President has been saying that Sen Senator Booker will lead an effort to destroy suburbia. Uh, this started a couple of months ago. There's no facts to support it. I've listened with interest to see if one, and I mean if one, of my Republican colleagues in the Senate would speak up on behalf of a Senate colleague and say that that's a lie, that there's no basis in fact, that the President wouldn't say it, that Senator Booker's a valuable colleague. I've not heard one member of the majority of this body speak up on behalf of their colleague to say that this kind of lie, which is rooted in racism, is wrong. My reading of human history suggests when bad things happen in societies, they're the perpetrators of those things and then there's the resistors of bad. But those ultimately at fault I've come to conclude are the bystanders. There's perpetrators and they do bad things and, and there's resistors who stand up against them. But no perpetrators are ever successful. They're never successful without huge groups of people who are willing to be bystanders and say nothing in the hopes that if they keep their head low, maybe they won't be a, a target or a subject. And what I see as I look at our profession that we want to set a human rights example is those words, though sincere, when they're said by many, are dramatically undercut by the current leadership of this country and dramatically undercut by so many who are willing to be bystanders and allow these abuses to pile on one after another. And the examples I've given you are only examples from the last couple of weeks. Let me ask you two things. If you are confirmed, will you do what you can in your work with the Saudis to get them to better treat U.S. citizens or U.S. residents like the Virginia residents uh, that have been subjected to prison terms and trials for women's rights activism? Senator, as appropriate, my role as Undersecretary of Jay in conversations with the Saudi Arabians as well as with our diplomats, happy to discuss these issues with them directly. And second, there is a U.S. resident who lives in Texas. He's a Belgian Rwandan citizen, Paul Rusasabagina. He received from President George W. Bush I think one of the highest civilian honors a president can give the Presidential Medal of Freedom for saving lives during the Wandan genocide. He's also been given an award by a, a group established by Congress, the Tom Lantos Human Rights Award. He has been involuntarily detained in Rwanda, unable to talk with lawyers of his choosing or his family, um, and brought up on charges that suggest he's a political opponent and may be involved in some significant activity, including potential violent activity against the government, but the State Department has repeatedly said that Rwanda trumps up charges against political opponents. Will you do what you can from the State Department to make sure that Mr. Rusa Sabagina, while in detention, is treated safely 
uh, and that any proceeding against him is done in an open and transparent manner so that the world can determine whether any charges against him are valid or not. Senator, I appreciate that question as well. And while I've received no briefings in relation to the <clears throat> imprisonment of this individual, I anticipate that in the event of confirmation, working with colleagues in the department to make sure that our opinions about what is going on there are clearly expressed directly and, if necessary, publicly. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Senator Kane. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Yulin, um, last year, I'm, I'm going to ask you a series of questions. I want to understand how you would approach this job if you were confirmed. Uh, President Trump reportedly said regarded uh, North Korea that, quote, I think Kim Jong-un or Chairman Kim, as some people say, is looking to create a nation that has great strength economically. I talked to him a lot about it. He's very much into that fact. Um, do you agree that Chairman Kim's desire to create a country with, quote, tremendous economic potential deserves praise when his regime has enslaved over 2.6 million of its own people, according to the Global Slavery Index, crushing human potential and systematically of human rights, including through starvation, rape, and sexual violence of women in detention, among other gross violations of human rights? Senator, thank you very much for the question. I think the President's instinct when it comes to relationships with such countries as North Korea is rooted in a grounding about a strong appreciation of human rights and that one of the strongest ways to advance the cause of human rights is economic improvement in countries. We are often called at J to work in collaboration and cooperation. So, so we promote economic the improvement at the well cost as with other. I want to understand what I don't want. I, I want to understand sure, but how you're going to, to Senator. I, I want to, to understand. I'm not going to let you filibuster. I know you learned that at the State Department. No, sir, I did not learn it. At the well, State you do it. You, then you've learned it here at, at the at, at the Senate. No, sir. We promote economic rights at the cost of all human rights. Is that what you're saying? No, because sir. at the end of the day, are you going to speak up about human rights I'm violations in places I'm, like North I'm, Korea? I'm, yes yeah. or no? Yes or no? Sir, that's a simple question. Sir, absolutely. As you know, the Jay family works hard to I'm asking find, you what, yes, what you would do in, if you're confirmed. Will you speak up vigorously about violations of human rights in places like North Korea? Yes or no? And as a confirmed undersecretary for Jay, part of our responsibilities include focusing on human rights challenges in countries such as North Korea, which Jay is already ensuring are brought into a spotlight and explicated before the world. Let me ask you this. Yes, sir. If you're confirmed, your role will be to serve as one of the United States' leading voices in promoting and advancing internationally recognize human rights and democratic norms. Uh, would you say that promoting respect for press freedom and support for independent media is one of those? Absolutely, Senator. As I explained to your staff, this is an area of particular interest. And as I mentioned earlier, internet freedom will be something that I expect. All right. So if that is the case, in over 600 tweets, President Trump has targeted specific news organizations including one that he normally likes, Fox News, The New York Times, The Washington Post, using slurs like fake, phony, nasty, disgrace, failing, 
calling the press the enemy of the people. Do you agree with those statements by the president? Senator, I have not tracked all 600 tweets, but I do know that part of my advocacy is to ensure that there is as large possible civil society and as vigorous a possible public square. Well, how do you promote of freedom of like the press abroad when it is attacked other. as the enemy of the people here at home? Can you explain that to me? Senator, it's pretty straightforward. The ability of anybody from the president to the most junior individual in our country to express an opinion about the media is one of our core freedoms and our core opportunities here in the United States and a value that I would look forward to promoting abroad. Secretary Pompeo is going to host a meeting at this year's UN General Assembly to remind member states of their commitments under the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which includes the right to seek and enjoy asylum, asylum that has been codified in U.S. law by the Refugee Act of 1980. I believe that the Trump administration is failing to adhere to U.S. laws that implement this important human rights framework with its asylum ban, its transfer of asylum seekers to Guatemala, and other policies. Do you agree that access to asylum is an obligation under U.S. law? Senator, I have not examined either the treaties or the legislation that you have identified um, to come to a conclusion on that. I'm happy to look into that in the event that I am confirmed. Well, let me ask you this. Um, the, um, I'm consistently shocked and alarmed by the administration's actions to undermine basic human rights for the world's most vulnerable groups. When Secretary Pompeo announced the formation of the Commission on Unalienable Rights last year, he stated that a proliferation of human rights claims had called into question which rights are entitled to respect. In July, at the launch of the Commission's report, the Secretary stated that property rights and freedom of religion are foremost rights, and the report itself dismisses LGBT plus rights, sexual and reproductive health rights as, quote, divisive social and political controversies. He insisted early on that the Commission's report would be divorced from policy for which the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor was created. Yet Commission members are traveling to the UN and other locations on the taxpayer's dime, representing, uh, presenting their report to other countries, and Secretary Pompeo is pushing the report in town halls and cable traffic. How do you explain this dichotomy? Precisely what should our country's role be in urging respect for LGBT plus populations abroad, as well as to reproductive rights and others that we have considered part of the human rights portfolio? Senator, thank you very much for the question. The Secretary's charge to the Commission was to examine and see if there was a common understanding of first principles that inform our perspective on human rights and the evolution of our understanding of human rights over the past two plus centuries, as well as the contribution that we've made to international fora when it comes to the question of human rights. There is absolutely, to your point, no policy that is contemplated or directed as a result of the Commission's report. Instead, a challenge to all of us at the State Department to understand, to see if we can understand how the work that we do every day relates to those fundamental first principles that really calls the United States to action inside the Jay family. I don't see an inconsistency at all for standing up for the rights of all around the world, including 
minorities, including sexual minorities, including LGTB people, I people, and those individuals, and push for decriminalization, and the work and thought leadership reflected in the Commission on Unalienable Rights. Well, I, I have to say that I, I don't get a sense that one of the most important positions, at least from my perspective, as a 28-year practitioner of foreign policy in Congress between the House and the Senate, that you are going to be an advocate for the type of global human rights and democracy norms uh, that we, on, both, on a bipartisan level for the most part, have embraced. What I think you're going to do is basically explain away our human rights standing in the world by justifying whatever it is uh, presses the enemy of the people. Uh, LGBTQ are divisive issues not to be promoted as human rights. Uh, that to me is not who I want to see in the person who is going to be supposed to be within the State Department other than the Secretary himself, the strongest advocate for human rights and democracy in the world. Well, Senator, I respect your perspective and I look forward to proving you wrong. If you get the chance. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I will. Thank you, and thank you to all of our nominees for providing us with the benefit of your testimony and responses. For the information of the members, the record will remain open until the close of business on Thursday, September 24th, including... Mr. Chairman, can I ask? Oh, yes, Senator Shaheen, did you wish to... I do. Oh, you do? Okay, yes. have at it. Sorry, thank you. Um, this question is for Mr. Pinto. The International Bank for Reconstruction and Development tends to work mainly with middle-income countries, countries which often have high amounts of poverty that disproportionately affect women and girls. Yet statistically, if women were able to fully participate in economies in those countries, the global GDP would increase by $12 trillion in the next five years. So can you tell me if confirmed what you could do in your position to support and improve the focus of the bank's projects on improving the lives of those women and girls and giving them that opportunity to fully participate in the economies of the countries where they are? Thanks for the question, Senator Shaheen. You've highlighted a critically important issue that uh, uh, the, the, the COVID-19 global pandemic has made uh, uh, glaringly apparent. Uh, the um, um, uh, women are, 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 are badly, well, the inf let me say that the informal economy is particularly hard hit by the global, uh, by the pandemic, and that is, that is in many countries predominantly women. So um, are, are the bank's hard work uh, to address the, uh, address, address the challenges that countries face uh, from, uh, from COVID-19 uh, needs to focus on women uh, and uh, Executive Director DJ Norquist has made this a huge priority, uh, and, and we are par we are partners. If confirmed, we, are, we would be partners together in, in addressing that. And I'd also like to just mention that uh, we've, uh, we've also placed a great uh, emphasis on the WeFi initiative, which supports uh, female entrepreneurs, particularly in in uh, developing countries and the challenges they face. And so those are uh, just a few uh, of of the of the initiatives that you know, if confirmed, we would continue to push. Uh, using the the uh, voice and voting power of the United States uh, at the bank. Well, thank you. I, I would point out that these were issues before the pandemic. I appreciate the focus on 
what's happening because of the pandemic, but it's clearly a broader concern than that. Um, we have all seen the reports of China's efforts to put in officials in positions of influence in international organizations, whether it's WHO, um, but the World Bank is on that list. And what happens given um, this administration's withdrawal from many international organizations and from uh, a commitment to multilateralism what kind of opportunity does that open for China to replace American influence and interest in many of those international organizations? Thanks for that question, Senator. It's something that we take very seriously, and certainly any re uh, retreat at the World Bank uh, uh, of United, the United States, as you know, is the, is the largest shareholder. Uh, so any, any retreat uh, of, of our influence at the bank does uh, allow allow China to to assert greater influence. So um, the, we we do have a robust engagement at the bank, and that will continue. And if I'm confirmed, I will certainly support that. And uh, uh, it's 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 certainly something that we take very seriously. Well, thank you. I would hope it's something that you also share with other members of the administration, so that um, the president understands the critical nature of ensuring the United States continued influence in those international organizations. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Shaheen. Uh, for the information, the members, the record will remain open until the close of business on Thursday, September 24th, including for members to submit questions for the record. With well, thanks to the committee, to our witnesses, this hearing is now adjourned.